Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to The Jason Wright Show. I am your humble, esteemed, your ready and willing host. I'm so glad you're here. So today, it's just me. It's just me. I decided I needed some alone time with you guys. Uh, as most of you know, Tuesdays are usually the long-form interview shows, but I thought I would change things up a little bit today. I wanted to do something like I named, so, okay, back up a little bit. So you know the motto of the show is improve always and always, right? And so I thought what I would start doing is bringing you some categories of improvement. And I'm sure you noticed by today's title, uh, this is how to improve your ability to become a millionaire. I'm going to give you tips and tactics that are time proven and tested on how to become a millionaire. And I think this is apropos for me personally at this time because I have a... Uh, I have some really good news. I have some great news, actually. My oldest daughter, Rylan, who is a student for a short period of time at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, will be graduating this weekend. And I am so thrilled for her. And so I'm hoping that I can convince her to listen to this episode because there are a few things you can do whenever time is on your side, as it is for Rylan, just starting her career, that... Those of us who are older, middle-aged, or even beyond, just can't do. And so anyone that is younger, and by younger, I mean if you are below 40, if you're between 22 and 40 years old, you have got so much time. And so the first piece of advice I can give you is start now. It's never too early to start investing. It's never too early to start saving, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist. One time I was speaking at this conference with um, several other professionals, and I was speaking on entrepreneurship, and this topic came up, and I wasn't even thinking. I have to admit, I was not even thinking, so just understand I wasn't being quite the uh, jerk that, it, that this sounds like I was being. This guy who was with me was a financial advisor, and I got to speak before he did. And I told all the students that essentially be, becoming a millionaire at your age is not very difficult. It's just not a challenge if you start right now. In fact, if you will just start right now with 50 bucks a month in an index 500 fund and add to that going to the rest, to the rest of your career and beyond – then it's almost guaranteed you will be a millionaire by the time it's time to retire. And, you know, he, he actually, after the deal, he emailed me, he said, you know, Jason, I'd like to visit with you. You know, I mean, um, some, it can be a little bit more complicated than that as far as trying to become a millionaire or whatever. And, and I, I understood. And, yes, you can, there are things you can do to be more active to as an investor to have more money. But as it relates to what we're going to be talking about today, I just want to give you some, again, time-tested tactics on how to become a millionaire. And it's not hard. It's not rocket science. And anyone can do it. The first thing, and, and here's what prompted this, just so you know. So I've been thinking about finance for a while, and I read this uh, article from CNBC. <clears throat> this guy, he had gone around, he had studied millionaires for five years trying to figure out all the uh, the top ways people became millionaires. 
And these are some of the results he came up with. So I thought what I would do is I would go through this article and then kind of also give just my spin on what I what I thought and things that you know I have applied throughout the course of my life that have worked and haven't worked. And I'll tell you this, the first thing that does not work, and so if you're listening to me, <clears throat> the first thing that doesn't work is to get rich quick. There is no easy, quick way to do it. Now, I, I have... I have friends that have made millions by being like Babe Ruth. They swing for the fences every time. And these are the same friends that go bankrupt, then they'll make another million. Then they'll go bankrupt, and they'll make another million. And they have a talent for that. They have the stomach for that. Most people don't. And here's the here's a little secret. Most everyone listening to this program, you are not going to become a millionaire based on making some big business deal, some big real estate deal, just some, some one-time windfall. It can happen, absolutely, but it's probably not. The reason why you hear about the massive, massive successes, and that's the thing that makes it so difficult right now, is so many people listening to this, young people, they, they see entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, you know, all these others that have just made billions, and it seems so easy, right? They're young they're in tech. They come up, came up with some some brilliant, easy idea, and before you know it, the market just rewarded them handsomely, and they're billionaires. And so a lot of young people see that, and they go, well, that's it. I'm, I'm going for that. And I'm here to tell you the reason why we can list all of those people's names, you know, Larry Page, Google, uh, all those guys, the reason why we can list them is because they are so exceptional, because they are so rare. But here's what you got to know. Most of America's millionaires you've never heard of and you never will, and most of them, like the book, there was a great book that came out about 20 years ago, The Millionaire Next Door. That describes the typical millionaire to a T. It's generally someone who just um, puts money away on a regular basis, and it's not glitzy. What they, The way they made their millions is not sexy. It's just compounded over time. Which So I thought that I would start today with a little story that I think is phenomenal from, uh, this is from, this is this story's been told a, a million, I don't know how many different times, but I'm going to read you the, the account of it from The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. And this is exactly how you become a millionaire. This, in principle, is how most millionaires are made. This is going to describe to you what Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world. It's what Benjamin Franklin was blown away by and, and considered like a, a miracle, that it was, the, it was the most marvelous thing ever invented, which is compounding interest. So this is the story of the magic penny. And I want you to answer this question right now. If I were to offer you a choice between taking $3 million in cash today, right now, or a single penny that doubles in value every 31 days, which would you choose? If you've heard this before, you know the penny gambit is the choice you should make. You know it's the course that will lead to greater wealth. Yet why is it so hard to believe choosing the penny will result in more money in the end? Because it takes so much longer to see the payoff. Let's take a closer look. Let's say that you take, a cold, you take the cold hard cash and your friend goes the penny route. On day five, your friend has 16 cents. That's not very sexy. You, however, have three million bucks. On day 10, it's $5.12 versus your big bucks. How do you think your friend is feeling about her decision? You're spending your millions enjoying the heck out of it and loving your choice. After 20 full days, with only 11 days left, Penny Lane 
has only 5243 bucks. How is she feeling about herself at this point? For all her sacrifice and positive behavior, she has barely more than $5,000. You, however, have $3 million. Then the invisible magic of the compound effect starts to become visible. The same small mathematical growth improvement each day makes the compounded penny worth. You ready for this? This isn't some sleight of hand. You can look this up. You can do the math yourself. This is real stuff. Okay, you ready? That one penny that doubles every day for 31 days is worth $10,737,737,000. Wait a minute. Sorry. $10,737,418.24. It's so big, it's hard for me to say. On day 31, more than three times your $3 million. In this example, we see why consistency over time is so important. On day 29, you've got your $3 million. Penny Lane has around $2.7 million. It isn't until day 30 of this 31-day race that she pulls ahead with $5.3 million. And then it isn't until the very last day of this month-long ultramarathon that your friend blows you out of the water. She ends up with $10,737,418.24 compared to your $3 million. That's how it works. And that's what you have to get your mind around from the get-go. If you want to become a millionaire, slow and steady wins the race. Every time. It is the tortoise and the hare. And in this case, the tortoise if consistent, if continues to run, will win the race. And, which makes sense, that in this article it says, number one, the number one uh, consistent uh, attribute correlation of all the millionaires was this, of, of most of them was this, the saver. These are investors. No matter what their day job is, they make saving and investing part of their daily routine. They are constantly thinking about smart ways to grow their wealth. The next class is the company climbers. Climbers work for a large company and devote all of their time and energy to climbing the corporate ladder until they land a senior executive position with an extremely high salary. So I want to tell you a little bit of of a personal story on this one. This is how I set out initially. Actually, I did both. One, I started out early on in a big Fortune 500 company saving as much as I possibly could. I had the maximum amount of my paycheck put into my 401k and because the match back then was really good. It was dollar for dollar up to, I think, 5%. And so I wanted to get at least my full match and then some. And so I got up to 5% and the maximum I think I could put in at the time was either 10 or 15%. I don't remember what the laws were, but either way, I maxed out my 401k. And in addition to that, I decided I wanted to be a corporate climber. That didn't last because I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur and set out on my own. But what a lot of people do is they put their nose to the grindstone. And I'm watching this now. I'm 47, and I see a lot of my friends that went into, they picked a lane early on, and they stayed in it, and they ran hard. And now they are literally making, you know, they're, they're making close to a million dollars a year in industries like software sales and software, you know, account management for Microsoft, computer associates, and, and other firms. So that is one way that you can become a millionaire. But here's the warning with that. If you're just starting out and you think that you're going to become a millionaire by grinding it out with one company, 
don't think don't spend the money early and think that eventually you're going to be making half a million bucks a year because most likely you're not. And besides that, you're going to have to be willing to really, really limit yourself if you're going to do that. If you're going to devote yourself to one company for that long, then there's going to be a lot of sacrifices along the way. There's going to inevitably be, inevitably be horrible bosses, a lot of travel, a lot of time away from the family, a lot of sacrifices. Whereas if you just start early on with the set it and forget it, set so much money aside. And here's a, here's a great principle that, um, that you can take for saving money that has worked for me. And, and I'm and telling let me tell you this too. So I came out of college during the, uh, the dot-com boom. And back then, even an idiot like me could just throw darts at a board and make money in tech stocks. So I thought I was really bright and really smart. I also had this idea that if I were just letting a financial advisor or relying on an index fund to do it, that somehow that meant that I wasn't smart enough to do my own investing. So my ego was getting in the way. So for those of you who think that you're going to actively manage your accounts, you're not. I'm just telling you, you're not. You're not going to do it. Unless you're going to devote all your time all day to do it, don't do it. And here's a great way to look at this. If you don't have a financial advisor, if you don't have someone helping you, and, it, and, and by the way, you don't have to have the full-blown financial advisor, the index fund. Where I got the idea of taking, like right now, if you were to ask Warren Buffett, the greatest investor America has ever known, Warren Buffett's advice if he were given $10,000 right now and he didn't have all of his wealth, what would he do with it? He always says, I would invest it in an index fund, like an S&P 500 index fund. Okay? These are funds that just track the S&P 500. They're managed by computers. There's no human emotion involved. It just literally tracks the 500 largest S&P companies in the country. Okay? It's the standard and poorest 500. You throw the money in there and just leave it. And then either, either forget about it or just add to it as you go along. That's the easiest way. And here's the thing that's fun when you start to think about things in terms like this, unlike what I did. I thought that it meant that I was kind of um, not as bright and I was not doing what I, I don't know. I just, it, it, it just, I had an ego attached to my investment instead of thinking, well, wait a minute, I'll hire somebody to do that. When you hire an investor or you open an index fund, you're outsourcing this to the professionals. Hire a staff without having to put them on salary. You know, this is one of the things that Tim Ferriss talks about in the four, four hour work week is this idea of outsourcing a lot of your daily tasks. I can tell you right now, as it relates to financial advising, you probably want to outsource that unless you, unless you're in the business or you just, you just, that's what you do. That's that you, you have a knack for it and you're in it each and every day. But the bottom line is, even if you are, even if you are brilliant, even if you're wicked smart, like Goodwill Hunting, you're probably not going to beat the S&P 500. You're not going to beat the Dow. The best of the best don't beat it. The people that make millions of dollars a year don't beat the Dow that often. So why do you think you're going to? Set it and forget it. Start, and start early and be regular and enjoy compounding. But as it relates to being the company climber, that's just that just wasn't for me. I decided what I was going to do you know, whenever I realized that to get really wealthy in Fortune 500, the Fortune 500 world, uh, all the travel and being away from home and just, I don't know, working for someone else, no matter how many perks. And I had great perks whenever I left the corporate world. Gosh, at the, I was pretty, I was only in it for six years. I was 28 and I was flying first class, traveling, eating in great restaurants, all the cool kind of supposed perks. But 
there's not enough steak dinners in the world that were worth me being away from Ryland and Abby when they were little. So, you know, you got to weigh those things. The virtuoso. Now, this is cool. This is one that if you can be this, I envy you. The virtuoso, they are among the best at what they do, and they're paid high a, a high premium for their knowledge and expertise. Formal education, such as advanced degrees, law or medicine, is usually a requirement. So this is if, you, if, if you're going to be a high-wage earner, a doctor, a really good engineer, a computer scientist, someone that's a, just a, a killer programmer. Okay, that's that's one that you can actually go for. And in fact, I always think of the the guy that I like to think of. It's a fictional character that fits this bill is somebody like Don Draper on Mad Men. I, I wish I had a skill or a talent that I was so good at that people would pay me a ton of money to do it no matter how I behaved. That's who Don Draper was the virtuoso. Uh, again, fictional character, but he was so good at what he did that they would pay him a lot of money and almost put up with anything that he did. So that is something that you might want to consider. If you are going to be in a, a lane that is a skilled profession, like a physician or something like that, you're going to be able to make a lot of money. So there you go. But if you're not, if you're going to be a computer programmer, if you're going to be in something creative, like if you're going to go into advertising or graphic design or something like that, just become so good at it that you can make a ton of money. Then there are the dreamers. The individuals in this group are all, are, they are all in pursuit of a dream. Wait a minute. In this group are all in pursuit of a dream. Okay. Such, starting their own, such as starting their own businesses, becoming a successful actor, musician, or best-selling author, dreamers love what they do for a living, and their passion shows up in their bank accounts. Okay, that's one you're probably not going to make the money. Let's just, let's just be real. But the thing is, if you're, if you're real, if you are someone that is, um, that is really bought into the, the dreamer lifestyle, then you probably don't care so much about money. It means more to you to actually do something you love that has some utility value to the market, that the market's willing to pay you to do enough to get by. And here's a, here's a little secret, too. When we're, as we're talking about improving your finances always and always and your ability to become a millionaire, statistics have shown this number for years, that in the United States of America, up to about $75,000, money does not correlate with happiness. And here's why. Once you reach about 75K in salary, that will pretty much take care of, in the United States of America, and again, this, this statistic has been around for a while. Now, inflation is going through the roof right now, so this is probably going to change at some point. But as it, just all things being kind of equal over the last few years, if you made 75K a year, then that would pretty much cover a house, food, car, your basic expenses. And once those needs are met, the more money that you make does not necessarily correlate with much more happiness. So I say that because here's something to always be mindful of. As you go through your career, once you get to the point where you can stop and really evaluate, am I happy, am I content? And if not, why? You will find that most, and if you take a real good audit of the things that you have and the things you need and those things that you have that you really like, that make, that bring you real happiness, 
he's was it uh, Marie Kondo that wrote the book uh, or the the idea of spark joy. You know, if he doesn't really bring you happiness, you probably have a lot of stuff already that you don't even need, and yet you want more, and it wouldn't make you any happier. So you really don't need that much extra money. A really good exercise to do is to currently take all of your expenses that you just absolutely have to have and divide them up by 365 and figure out what your daily burn rate is. And you'll find it's not that much. So this whole idea of, you know, being a millionaire, you may find you don't even need a million to get to a retirement age quicker than what you thought. Or by the time you're 65, especially, that's a long time. I mean, most of it, if if you start working whenever you're 22, I mean, 43 years is a long time to save and go slow. And so what I'm saying is this, you can actually, don't worry so much. If if becoming a millionaire is, is your goal, don't worry so much about becoming a millionaire at 30, 35, 40. I did that. I was worried sick about I had to be a millionaire as quickly as I can. And as a result, I was, I was very miserable for a lot of that time because in, when in, instead it's like I didn't need a million bucks. I mean, I had my health. I, had, I was able to work. I had high earning potential. I didn't need a million dollars. So why was I sweating it to make a million when really – all I needed, according to most statistics, and I've, I've, I think this pretty much bears out, all I needed was about 75K to live a good quality life and then saving a smaller amount for the long haul so that whenever I am older, I can't work as much. I do want more leisure time, that there's enough money there to fund that. So, and oh, I, I think I'm, I began to say this earlier, but I didn't finish the thought. Uh, a great principle for, for just managing your money is 80-10-10. Live off 80% of your money. If you will start this, and I'm telling you, gosh, the young people in the audience, if you would please listen to this. I mean, and I say, if, even if you're 35, you still have time to do this. If you would take 80% of your money and live off of it, save 10% and tithe 10%, or donate, give, whatever, charity, that's what I, that's if you, if, I'm not telling you you should, you have time, but as a Christian, that's what we do. So 80, 10, 10, live off 80, save 10 and tithe 10. Now, a lot of people will be like, well, only save only 10%. There's no way that you can become a millionaire doing that. Yeah, just you absolutely can. And here's what it does. Whenever you automatically have that 10% going toward investment, going towards that set it and forget it, which means just it just automatically you never feel it. They take the money out before you even know. Or you And look, let's say that you're an entrepreneur. There's a, there are a lot more people in this gig economy that are doing freelance work. So you say, well, Jason, who's going to take, you know, I don't have an employer to invest in a 401k. I guarantee you, your bank has online banking, right? Well, here's one of the things that I started doing. Uh, in some of my entrepreneurial accounts, to make sure, because I didn't do this early on and I regretted it. The best thing I've ever done is I look back over all of my saving habits. The best thing I ever did was set it and forget it so I didn't have to think about it. I had to exercise no thought to the saving process. I didn't have to have that, that inner conversation, the inner negotiation with, oh my gosh, do I write this check to Vanguard or do I go ahead and save the money and go buy, buy that new car? I didn't have to do that. It just automatically went out of sight, out of mind. Let's say that you're, in a, you're an entrepreneur or you're working as a freelancer. Set up an account right now. 
that's a savings account, okay, that you can actually set automatic transfers within your bank account to go from your primary checking account into at a certain time. Even it's 75 bucks, 50, 75, 100 bucks, doesn't matter. It goes into this savings account, right? A money market account or something like that. Then tie that money market account to after it gets to a certain level. Let's let that be your emergency account. So it gets up to about, say, a thousand bucks. So now you've got a thousand bucks to kind of get you out of a jam in case you need new tires or something happens to your car or your air conditioner goes out in the house, whatever the case may be. You got a thousand bucks saved. Then all of a sudden, you link that account to a Vanguard 500 account. The expense ratios are so low on those index funds. I mean, they cost almost nothing to have your money managed by computers putting it into the uh, Vanguard 500 index. I think that's still probably the biggest one. So you have automatic withdrawals from that savings account of 50 bucks a month going into that Vanguard account. You don't think about it. So now what you do when you get a check for your freelance work, somebody pays you whatever, you stick it in there and you take it and you automatically, it just, it goes, some of it goes into savings and then from the savings, it goes into the investment account. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to write any any checks. It's just done. If you can just automate as much of your financial life as possible, it will save you from making bad decisions because there's no decisions to be made. You make the decision one time and the only money you ever see is the money that's left over after the giving, after the, the investing, all that you see is the money that's left over. Here's another thing to do. Have at least a little bit of cash that you take every every pay period. Here's why. And, and try your best not to use debit and credit cards. And, and it's weird because everyone uses debit and credit cards now, right? Well, on average, and, and you can kind of mix this up, but here's the thing you've got to know. And I guarantee you, think about this. Most people are going to spend, on average, 30% more if they use a debit or credit card while they're shopping, okay? So if you will just take, every time you get paid, just say, my, my walking around money is 200 bucks. And every time I make a purchase, I don't care if it's at, if it's buying, you know, groceries, if it's at a restaurant, try to pay cash. If you will pay cash when you see the money, the psychological impact of that will make you be much more accountable for how much you're spending. It changes everything. The money is, the cost is exactly the same. Your habit for how you spend the money will absolutely change if you only use cash. Mrs. Wright is wonderful at this. Mrs. Wright, uh, one of the easiest things for me in my life to maintain good habits is being married to Jimmelyn Wright because she has such amazing habits and she wants to pay cash for everything everything. And as a result, there's such a, there's such a piece too, is because you never have to look at your, you have to worry about when you pay for something with cash, you never have to think, oh my gosh, how much is left in my checking account? Because you pay with a debit card. You never have to think about, oh my God, what's the credit card bill going to look like? And when you start to relieve yourself upfront at the point of transaction from those later anxieties, those postponed anxieties, when you start to relieve yourself from those, it changes everything. You will get addicted to those good feelings. Um, Here's something, okay. Number one, the people that were the savers, they automated and saved 20% of their net pay. Okay, right? Sounds familiar. 
every saver investor in the study consistently saved 20% or more of their net pay each paycheck. Now, I split mine. I said save 10, give 10, but nevertheless, principles are the same. The dollars are the same. Uh, once a month, the saver investors would then transfer their accumulated 10% monthly savings. Wait a minute. Temp- typically, 10% went into an employer-sponsored retirement account. Okay, so they're they're getting paid. 10% is going into the, their, the sponsored account. And then the other 10% was automatically directed into a separate savings account, like I was talking about. Even if 20% is too steep at the moment, saving a smaller percentage consistently can still help you meet your financial goals for the future. Two, they regularly invested a portion of their savings because saver investors consistently invested their savings. Their money compounded over time. That goes back to the magic penny. And that's why I don't suggest taking that 10 or 20% and just sticking in the savings and think you're saving because let's face it, it's not going to go, even with interest rates going up right now, you're just not going to make that much money in a money market account. You're not going to be able to take advantage of the compounding effect that it would have if you would take a portion of that and put it into an investment account, okay? So that's very important. Investors consistently invested their savings, their money compounded over time. When they started, this compound interest was not very significant, but after 10 years, they began to accumulate significant wealth. Towards the final years of their working lives, the saver investors' wealth grew to an average of $3.3 million. The millionaires who pursued a dream and started a business, a.k.a. the dreamer entrepreneurs, did not have the ability to invest their savings, particularly in the early stages of pursuing their dreams. Whatever savings they did have were used as working capital in order, I've been there, and as working capital in order to fund their dream. However, once most of these dreamer entrepreneurs achieved success in the form of available cash flow, they immediately pivoted and began to invest their earnings. Here's Here's another three characteristic of them. They were extremely frugal. One of the common denominators for saver investors, big company climbers, and the virtuoso self-made millionaires in, in this study was being frugal. For these millionaires, frugality began the moment they received their first paycheck, and I cannot stress enough. If you will do it when it's small, it will be so much easier to do it when it's big. If those of you who think that, well, I can't afford to save right now. I only make thirty-five grand a year. So at ten percent, that's thirty-five hundred bucks a year. I, that's over three hundred bucks a month. I can't even fathom saving that kind of money. Let me explain something to you. It may intellectually seem like when you get to the point where you're making three hundred and fifty thousand a year, it'll be so much easier to save. Do you really think? Do you really think it's going to be easier? to put away $35,000 a year than it is $3,500? If you do think that, you're nuts. I can promise you it is not easier. It's only harder. Just because you're making more money doesn't mean that the, the amount feels smaller whenever it comes to investing. So if you will start early on with this idea that I only live off 80% of my income, and you carry that throughout your entire career, you will be amazed at how much easy, because then it's just, you don't even feel it. You just know it's 10% of whatever. You know, then that's how you make the 3,500 feel no different than the 35,000 is you just, you only think in percentages. 
You decide early on, I don't care. While I'm in an apartment, I'm driving an old beater car, I don't have the money for new clothes. And again, this is what I always tell young people. Whenever I go speak at, um, at Stephen F. Austin State University, which I do quite a bit, I'm talking to the Career Success Passport kids. Whenever I go to telling them, here are some things that you should do starting out, I, I, I level with them and say, look, here's the deal. You're all expected to be poor when you graduate. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of the fact that no one expects you to be doing really well right out of school. Because there's a natural instinct to start eventually getting into your career, wanting to come back to It's so silly how we are as humans. And I look, I've done it too. I, I'm not, please don't uh, consider me self-righteous here, but five, six, ten years after graduation from high school or college, right, we want to go back to the reunion or the, the fraternity founder's day having made some bank, driving a nice car, looking like you're doing well, okay? That's going to creep up, and you will have that battle to fight. Hopefully, you never will. Hopefully, you'll be one of these, you know, hopefully, you'll be somebody that just doesn't even pay attention to any of that crap. But a lot of us, we just can't help it. So take advantage of those early years when no one expects you to have anything anyway to go ahead and save 10 cents of every dollar that you're going to make. Just do it, or 20 cents of every dollar right then. I mean, just suck it up and just make it just a mission to see just how Poor you can be during your poor years. If you can do it, because it will only get harder as you get older. Awareness, uh, being aware of how you spend your money. you got to think about every penny, penny you spend uh, to focus on quality. Spending your money on quality products and services. This is one of the things that it took me a long while to learn. Again, Mrs. Wright, she's much better at me in doing I used to be the guy that I wanted a lot of a thing. If I found something that was at a moderate price, I'd want a lot of it versus just holding out to get the absolute best thing I could get for my money. Quality over quantity wins every time. Bargain shopping, spending the least amount possible by shopping around for the lowest prices. Now, look, this is one of the things that I'm a master of. And I learned this. I don't know that I can say I learned this, but one of the coolest stories I heard about this that I have practiced ever since, for sure, is John Travolta. When John Travolta started making a lot of money, and he's very, he is incredibly wealthy, and he's a very good steward of his resources. There's a reason why he has triple seven jets that are paid for, his houses are paid for. John Travolta is not only a, a an iconic actor, but he's an incredibly wealthy, good steward of his resources. I remember reading a story. I think it was in GQ years ago about the Rolls-Royce that he was driving. And I know you think, okay, Rolls-Royce? Oh, really? Good, really frugal, huh? Well, here's the deal. He explained that he drove about a 10-year-old Rolls-Royce Phantom. I can't remember what model it was. I don't know Rolls-Royces. I don't care about Rolls-Royces, but the article was cool. His was about 10 years older than the new model, although they looked almost identical because, I mean, what I just said, I don't know Rolls-Royces. I just see Rolls-Royce, and I don't know if it's 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. It's a Rolls-Royce, right? has all the same bang. It's beautiful. It's luxurious, whatever. And that's what Travolta was explaining. He said, I can drive this car for that's fifty dollars to $75,000 less than the new Phantom, and I get the same impact. I have a Rolls-Royce. It's a beautiful car. I love it. He said, I always go for the absolute best best I can get for the best price. And that stuck with me. And that's one of the things that I did. Like I, you know, I used to be in the luxury 
uh, watch business. I was an advisor for Crown and Caliber, which Hodinkee just bought. And that was one of the things that reiterated this for me whenever I saw how much you could save by buying a pre-owned luxury watch. If you saw me walking down the street with a Rolex Submariner, would you have any clue from the street whether I bought it new or used? No, there's no way you would. But I would sure as hell know whenever I'd paid 30% less for it from County Caliber than, well, because you can't even buy a Rolex sub right now, retail. And by the way, I bought my first Rolex Submariner used for $2,850 instead of at the time I think they were retailing at that time for around $5,500. I sold that watch for $8,600. So I was able to get some appreciation by, again, understanding the quality of the watch, the market's desire for the watch, but not being hung up on just going to the store and having to buy a brand new one. So being a bargain shopper, those are some of the things that you can do. So I just thought that today would be a good day to do like an improve always and always segment. And on financial advising and how to become a millionaire, it's, it's not that complicated. And for those of you who are listening to this that are, that are 50, you know, 60 years old, and you have no net worth to speak of, what do you do? Well, here's the deal. First of all, if you're that age and you're still working, the best thing you've got going for you is your ability to make money. So you can shed a lot of fat. You can get rid of anything you don't need. And we live in a time now where, like, here's one of the decisions that Mrs. Wright and I have made. Uh, we love, we have a small home and we love it. Did you know, see, here's the thing you just got to think about. Did you all know that most people only use 20% of the square footage of their home? That's it. The 80-20 rule applies to almost everything, even how much of your home you use. So we live in a neighborhood surrounded by really big houses, beautiful homes. I love them. They're gorgeous. But most of these people are only using 20% of that big million dollar house they have. Whereas Mrs. Wright and I, we use almost 100% of our smaller home. And it just makes more sense. And so if you are older and you haven't started, start now. But, I, but I'm telling you, the set it and forget it, the, the long game is the way to play this. That's how you become a millionaire. And look, I know most of you know this. You've heard this. Uh, maybe I'll do an episode. I'm actually, I've thought about writing a course on how to buy businesses. A, another good way to, there are some relatively conservative ways to make good money by buying revenue streams, which is essentially just a, I guess, a fancier or more sophisticated way of buying a business. You go buy someone else's income. You can do that. But as it relates to becoming a millionaire, it's not sexy. It's not sexy. You just start early. You save. You rely on the compounding effect, and good things will happen if you're willing to do it. So I hope you guys found this beneficial. I want to do more episodes like this where I actually talk about things, this whole improve always and always, just taking the show to really dive into something. And if you have any questions or if you have any suggestions as it relates to financial advising, money, things that you've done that have helped you make good money. And uh, with that, again, congratulations to Rylan. 
my oldest, Roll Tide. So proud of you, baby. And until we meet again, everyone, I hope you will continue to improve not only your your finances, but your health, your spirituality, your emotionals, your emotion, your emotionals, your emotions, all of it. Improve always and always. I'm Jason, and I'm out.